Hi everyone, welcome to Femex Podcast. This is your host, Jesse Medina, and today I'm excited to connect with you. I want to address the fact that we are living through a pandemic as we speak, that I know that we've been home, that we've been trying to juggle and even recreate or change some of the things that we do. Some of you may not be working right now, some of you may have your business on hold, and a lot of us are just trying to keep up with everything and just create beautiful things. So if you are listening right now, I just want to encourage you, this is a good time for us to create. This is a great time for us to reflect, and I will be sharing about that. Um, in the days coming up, but in today's episode, I have the honor of interviewing Christine Rodriguez. She is the founder of Girl Collective. She's a survivor, an entrepreneur, and advocate for women and girls globally. She um, went through a, a really interesting process after basically getting her abuser in jail Um, and she testified against them. So I'm just really excited to share a little bit about her story and what led her to start Girl Collective. This story is really beautiful. There were moments where I felt really vulnerable um, and I'm just really grateful for her and sharing. She really is an amazing woman and she's a young woman. So it's really beautiful to see what she has created. So without further ado, Here it is. Hi, everybody. Welcome. I'm here with Christine. I'm super excited to be talking to you today. How are you, Christine? I'm doing okay. I feel like, you know, things are a little bit crazy right now, um, but I'm doing as best as I can be right now. And I hope that everyone out there is feeling the same. I know, you know, we're all just trying to stay positive right now. So I think that's sort of the headspace that I'm trying to occupy as well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm super excited to have you because I think it's so important to have these conversations during this time where like, it seems like we can't think about anything else but the coronavirus. I think it's really cool to be able to listen to inspiring stories like yours and and just kind of like be reminded that there's a whole world out there, that there's hope and that we are all doing our best um, to show up in this world the best that we can. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do, but um, first how how you got started, what um, made you get started in this journey that you're in? Yeah, so I am the founder and the designer behind Girl Collective. Girl Collective is a lifestyle brand for girls that give a fuck. Again, not sure if you can point that out. Um, So, yeah, we are all, you know, online. We also uh, post a bunch of content to help with women and girls empowerment. And our whole um, thing behind the business is that we uh, donate 20% of our proceeds to funding girls' education in India. So the way that I got started is actually kind of a long story, but I think it's important. Um, So uh, back in 2017, I, so a little bit of background is I worked in the music industry for almost eight years, Um, started in radio, then went to record label stuff um, and ended up at a multicultural marketing agency in LA in 2017. Um, That same year, I also testified against my abuser, um, who also happened to be my stepfather. Um, 
and he was sentenced to life in prison. Um, and I think that that the trial and the process of all of this just sent me down this path that I was not prepared for, which led to, I've always dealt with anxiety, um, which I also link back to the abuse that was happening. Um, didn't know what it was when I was younger. I just knew that I, you know, felt panicked a lot, like, you know, short breath situation. I would get super nervous in front of crowds or, or talking to certain people. Um, and I didn't know until I started going to therapy that it was anxiety. Um, so post trial, really, I started now, I found myself now falling into depression, which was something new, um, because I hadn't previously experienced depression. Um, and I realized like, I need to do something about this because nobody's going to save me from this. I, nobody can save me from this, but myself really. And how old were you at this time once the trial was over? Um, I was, when it was over, I think I was 27. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so this happened when you were a child and then it took all these years for this chapter to kind of unravel and end in a way. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, so he, yeah, the abuse started when I was around five, um, and it didn't end until I was around 16 and I didn't go to see a therapist until I was 25. Um, and that was the first time that I ever like told the therapist about it. Um, so he had gotten arrested that same year that I went to therapy. Um, and he was in, in jail for two years before we even went to trial. So I had known about the arrest and, you know, obviously the emotions of going through that with somebody who was your father figure, um, but also your abuser and trying, you know, for a long time, I think I tried to separate the two. Um, but eventually through therapy and stuff, I've had to realize like he is one person, he is not two people. Um, and so I think that that sort of led me to have two years to be thinking about how the trial was going to go, try to like mentally prepare myself for how the trial was going to go. Um, but what I came to realize was that there was nothing that could have prepared me for how a trial does go. And how you know victims are treated during the whole process that was really I wanted to ask you about that you know yeah. because i feel like a lot of the times the victims are actually the ones treated like the perpetrator or the criminal yes yeah. your experience it was i'm not i'm not gonna sugarcoat it because that's why you know we're talking about it and that's why we're open about it um it was really 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 difficult and i you know through the process, I was on the stand for two days and I am a huge fan of Law & Order SVU. And so <laughs> I assumed that it was going to be like that, like, oh, 30 minutes, two hours, like then we're, we break for lunch and I'm done. But no, when I got there, you know, one, seeing him for the first time in a really long time uh, was super emotional for me. I couldn't stop crying. The DA had to, you know, walk me back in there and she was like hugging me and trying to talk me through this because at that point I realized how important my testimony was for them. Um, and I think that, you know, when you're on the stand, they do question you for hours upon hours, which everyone who I talk to is like, what could they possibly be asking you for eight hours? And that's what you think in your head too. Like, yeah, what could they, but this is why it's only going to be a couple hours, but they, they question you about every little instance, like, where you were standing and what proximity to the perpetrator were you? How many feet? Like, what yeah. month were we talking 17 years ago? You know, it was just very, um, 
you know, I feel like I eventually became numb to it. Um, and it, it does seem like sort of a dream now because I, I don't remember huge parts of it anymore. I think that my mind just went into like fight or flight mode and Mm -hmm. sort of just like disconnected because I think that's what I had to do to get through the questions that they were asking, because they do ask you very in-depth, you know, questions that you would never want to be telling to a group of strangers. So it definitely felt, yeah, it does feel like a little bit like you're being attacked, even by the person who's supposed to be on your side, which for me was the DA. And she it was a woman and she explained to me after, because I did tell her, like, I felt like you were yelling at me. <laughs> You know, yeah. I didn't feel like you were in my corner. Yeah. And she's like, I'm sorry, but that's how I have to be with both people, with everybody that's on the stand. I can't show, you know, favoritism or, mm-hmm. you know, like empathy towards you on the stand. So that sucked because I felt like, okay, now it feels like nobody's mm-hmm. on my side right now because everyone's staring at you. You know, and the jury is a bunch of people that you don't know who some of them are staring at you like, what? And some of them are staring at you like, oh, I feel so terrible for you, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's all those emotions of trying to, you know, you can't really say anything but yes or no, which is which is something I didn't realize either. So when they ask you questions, yeah. like, you can't explain yourself. You can't say like, yeah, because there's no, there's no because. It's just yes or no. And you don't have until the end of the trial to actually explain your side of it, which is called an impact letter, which you read at the end of the trial. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So after that, um, you know, I was starting to fall into depression and I, you know, had been living with my boyfriend, now husband at the time for been five years, I think. And I just came to him one night and was like, I, I have to find my happiness. And I don't really know how to do that right now. I'm, I'm such a, I felt like I was a zombie just like moving through life. I wasn't paying attention at work. I was, I was just doing what I had to do, pushing papers and making decks and doing, having meetings and all this stuff. But inside, I just felt like dead in a way, you know? So I, you know, had spent, I've spent a lot of my life giving back and being part of nonprofits. I used to have a nonprofit, Um, and volunteering, it's always been a part of who I am because my mom raised us that way. Um, and so I knew what volunteering and helping somebody else could do for me. And so I decided to look into, um, different volunteer options where I could go and fly to volunteer somewhere. Um, so that's when I found the Sambali Trust, which is where I ended up going in Jodhpur, India. Um, and so I found their website online. I went into work the day I applied before I even knew if I got accepted to volunteer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, so I, I quit my job and I was like sitting there thinking, Christine, what did you just do? That was, you know, you have one paycheck to your name. This is not the smartest decision, but I also sort of, you know, at the time, like didn't, didn't have another answer. So I left three months after to go volunteer in India for 40 days with the Sambali Trust um, by myself, had never been to India, do not speak the lang- any of the languages besides English. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> had had Indian food like twice in my whole life before going to India for 40 days um, and really knew, did not know much about the culture. So it was definitely scary. Everybody thought I was crazy. My mom 
I had to lie to my mom and tell her that I knew somebody who had volunteered there before because she was like, what if you get kidnapped? Like all of these things. So yeah. <laughs> so tell me about that experience. How did that go over there? Okay. I know in, in India, they do speak English, right? Like a lot of people yes. speak English, but yes. um, you know, still like, it's still crazy. It's still a foreign language, a foreign culture to you. So how did it go? And yeah what impact did it have on you so india taught me so much about myself so much about life more than i could ever even express and i i recommend that everyone go to india at least once in their lives and experience it and be there for more than a few days at least a couple weeks um but you know being a latina i was raised eating Mexican food, honestly, for the most part, because we <laughs> ate at home. We ate at home most days. We yeah. didn't have much money. Um, you know, it was, I definitely didn't realize how much food affected my, my mentality, which mm. is crazy to think about because it seems so little and dumb, but mm -hmm. like, I, I didn't realize how much I would miss little things like eating a burrito or like a taco or even having like a hamburger or pizza mm -hmm. being able I guess what it came down to was like accessibility I didn't realize and now with the virus going around we are starting to realize here in the U.S. like what a big deal accessibility is mm -hmm. and in India the place that I stay in which is Jodhpur you know there's other places in India that have a lot more accessibility and more options and things like that but Jodhpur specifically um is mostly vegetarian and being oh. a meat eater, that was very difficult for me sometimes. Like right. I, at least chicken, like I don't need to eat red meat, but chicken, I was craving more than you can imagine all the time. Like I just want chicken. I want to go into, you know, a place and order the kind of food that I want. Like I wanted to get pizza, you know, I wanted, I missed like going to grocery stores that had a bunch of options because mm -hmm. The grocery store that we'd go to was like a nice one, but it just, there was no option and you couldn't eat some of the fresh stuff because our stomach can't handle it mm -hmm. because of the germs and stuff. And so it was just that I would say was one of the more difficult lessons that I had to learn was that food is to nourish our bodies. It's not, you know, obviously we use it a lot, especially in the Latino culture for celebration and all that stuff too. So It, that was definitely something that like took a toll on me. And also I, I learned that them doing things differently. Like when I was going over there, people would tell me, oh, okay, they're not like some people there don't use toilet paper. And I was like, what? Like, what are they even understand? <laughs> what are you talking about? But to some of some, the people in Jodhpur, they're like, you guys using toilet paper is unsanitary where we thought them not using toilet paper was unsanitary. So, so then or what do they use? Over they there? use water. They use water. So like, I mean, that sounds like a pretty clean option. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, in the poor areas, they'll use like a cup or their hand with the water. And in like, obviously richer areas, it's more like a bidet sort of situation. Mm -hmm. So that was something where I had a mentality shift of like, nobody's like right here and if anyone's right it's probably them like western culture is different than east you know eastern culture and that we just do things differently because we think that we're right here and we may not necessarily be right and i didn't ever think of that before i didn't think like yeah that is more you know clean for it to do it that way to do it with water like 
that mm-hmm. makes sense. You know, squatting at the toilet instead of sitting on it. That makes sense when it comes mm-hmm. to being clean. And, you know, obviously seeing a toilet where you had to squat and not sit, I was baffled to the first time. <laughs> like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to keep my, um, my balance? Like, am I going to fall in? All of these things. So I think I started to realize, like, I had such a big shift in my mentality of realizing, like, just because I live in America and in America we're taught like this is the right way and America is the best. Like that is not true. And it's so, it's something that's ingrained in us here from such a young age that I didn't realize how poisonous that can be and going Mm -hmm. to somewhere, another country and seeing how they do things and seeing how it works is Mm -hmm. so eye opening, you know? And I think like, the biggest thing and you know why I started Girl Collective is because I realized how different it was for women and girls in that country um, mm-hmm. versus America. And I think, you know, I, I realized that there was a disparity when it came to education and accessibility for girls to go to school, but I guess mm-hmm. I didn't realize how bad it was and I didn't realize why. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Jodhpur, they follow the caste system, which, um, I don't know, do you know about the caste system in India? Mm-mm. So it's basically you're born into a caste and it's like a hereditary um, way of sort of separating people and different like Muslim, they have Muslim caste, they have Hindu caste. Um, so the oh, girls yeah. that I work with are mostly Hindu um, and they in Jodhpur, like they have to have their caste on their driver's license. They have to have it when they vote. Like really? it is everywhere. Yes. Wow. I had and, no idea. Yeah, it was very, I had no idea either until I went there. And I'm sure there are people listening to this podcast that probably know a lot Mm -hmm. more about it than Mm -hmm. I have. Um, But every time I go to India, and now it's been three times, um, I try to learn a little bit more about it from the people there Mm -hmm. because I find it so interesting, you know. And um, so basically, if you were born into a lower caste, the thing is, is you do have less options. You do have less opportunity. And so the girls that we work with are in the lowest caste. Um, and they, the girls in the lower castes are, you know, not prioritized when it comes to school. So if you live in a village and the schoolhouse is small, priority, priority goes to boys first, then wow. it goes to, you know, uneducated, sorry, first it goes to boys and then, um, girls are allowed to go if there's enough room. If the girl is even allowed to go, some families need the girls to stay home because the moms and the dads work. And they need somebody to be home to make food because food prepping when you live in a village and you're cooking over a fire takes all day, you know? Um, So I started to realize how bad it really was in the girls. So the Simbali Trust has um, empowerment centers and they also have two boarding homes. So I was volunteering in the boarding home and the boarding homes are girls that are pulled from the villages, obviously with their parents (laughs) um, consent and, you know, Mm -hmm into the trust for taking them to Jodhpur out of the villages into the city to be able to access schooling. Um, So I would work with the girls after they got homeless from school to tutor them and to help them with English because they aren't taught English in school. Um, And English is such an important thing for them to learn because it is their key uh, to be able to go to college. Um, So, Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so then you went there. Obviously, it was an incredible experience. Then you came back to the U.S. And then walk me through the process of you starting Girl Collective and, like, how did you even think about it? And, like, 
you know, what was the, the first steps that you took to get going with it? Yeah, so I started making jewelry to raise money for my trip to India because, as I said, I had one check to my name. And when I quit my job, I just remember praying and thinking about it and God just being like, it's going to be fine. You're going to be able to raise the money. Um, and so I did. I made jewelry and different things. I literally was like making cutting boards, everything I could think of to wow. sell to my friends and family. Um, and I had a party here at my house and I did a silent auction where everyone just writes their name on a mm -hmm. card if they want it. And everyone keeps like one upping each other. And the jewelry did really well. And, and when I was in India, my friends were still asking me for like tassel, um, tassels and hoops. And so I realized, I think it was day 18 when I was there, um, that this could be my thing that I sell in order to make money to give to the girls. So mm -hmm. while I was still in India, I had this idea. I thought to name it Girl Collective because it was like girl without the I. So like all of us. Um, and I wanted it to be a collective because I knew from the beginning that there was going to be different parts to this business. Mm -hmm. And I called my best friend, um, via FaceTime and had her help me set up my Shopify account because I could not set it up in India without it thinking that I was an India based business. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, Hey, can you log on and just like start yeah. the account? Give me the login mm -hmm. so that I can do the stuff from here yeah. while I'm in my room at night bored, you know? Um, yeah. so yeah, that was how I initially started the site. Um, and then I had the girls that were other volunteers just model some of the jewelry that I had made while I was in India because I had brought my earring making stuff to like pass the time. Um, so that was like the technical first photo shoot. Um, but then I officially launched it with like a video and the Instagram when I came home in October of 2017, I still did not have a full website or any of that stuff or a real photo shoot. Um, so we kind of have like two birthdays, which would be October 2017 and then April 2018, which is when we had a launch party. We had our first photo shoot done. I had my full first full collection. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, congratulations. I, I love it because you have turned a need that you saw and also the, the compassion that that was born because of the things that you had been through into something beautiful to help other people. And I think the biggest lesson that we can get from your story is that, right? That like, what are you going to do with what life handed you, you know? So yeah. tell me now what's happening now, what's next for you and what's next for girl collective. Yeah. Um, what's happening now. <laughs> <laughs> so what was supposed to be happening now and what happened for like a couple of weeks before we yes. went into quarantine um, was that I was focusing this year. So I left my full-time job in December um, of 2019. I'm like, what year are we in? Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and with the amazing help of my husband, I've been able to do Girl Collective starting January full-time um, up until now. And so my goal for this year was to release more apparel and to do more pop-ups and markets. So um, mm -hmm. before we went into quarantine, I did um, an event at Netflix for their International Women's Day and sold um, Girl Collective there, which was wow. honestly so amazing. And I, I did, you know, tear up a little bit about it because I realized <laughs> like, wow, two years ago, I was calling up my friends who worked at like female mostly female offices and being like, Hey, can I come set up my jewelry during Christmas time to like sell some stuff? And, 
And now here was Netflix reaching out to me because yeah. of a girl that I had met two years ago who came to our launch party, who now works at Netflix and, and put it, put girl collective in front of them to consider for this event. Um, mm-hmm. So that was really, really amazing. And we sold so well there and it just proved that I knew that there are girls out there who care you know, to shop with brands that give back and to mm-hmm. some really cute feminist sort of things. So, yeah. um, and then we did a couple more markets, one in Whittier and uh, one in Pomona. And then we did have markets lined up. We were supposed to do Renegade Craft and we we're also supposed to do Artisan Please, which were two really huge markets that I've been trying mm-hmm. to be ready to get into. Um, and I did get accepted and that was obviously amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, amazing. Um, but they are canceled as of now. Yeah. So my what I've been trying to figure out in the past couple of weeks is just, you know, now we have to pivot. It's not it's not the end. It's not over. Mm-hmm. You know, now we pivot to I did put a lot of money and, you know, and in investing in the company and myself in inventory because I knew I had to be ready for the markets. Mm-hmm. And now I have all this inventory and I don't have any markets. So this whole week has been just, okay, we're not going to get down in the dumps about this. Like we're going to figure it out. And yes, Mm -hmm. people are, you know, focused on their health and keeping everybody safe and all those things. And I am too, you know, I have a Mm -hmm. grandma who's going to be 80 this year and who I am very worried about through this whole process. Um, And also I want to make sure that girl collective and the platform is a positive place and if people do want to support small businesses you know and and have the means to do that and I'm talking about like salaried employees and things like Mm -hmm. that um we're here for that so I've been Mm -hmm. doing a lot of promotions online um you know uh I guess like talking to the community to see what they want and need in this time Mm -hmm. Um, because at the end of the day the Instagram exists for the girls um, mm-hmm. And I think that they know that. And I mm-hmm. I try to drive it home with them as much as I can because the Girl Collective community and the girls, as we call it ourselves, um, has been such an amazing, amazing, you know, part and effect of me launching Girl Collective and has been the best part of, you know, coming home and feeling so helpless when it comes to being able to be with the girls in India. Like, I miss them all the time. I think of them all the time. I have their picture right above my desk to remind me that, you know, on hard days, like they're, they're exactly why I'm doing this. Um, But they, they are why I do it every day. And um, the community here also helps to remind me of that. You know, Um, Mm -hmm. there's so many girls out there who want to do good and who care about their community and who care about girls education that it just, it really makes me feel so optimistic and so excited um about the future and i think you know it's affected girls in ways that i didn't even realize um Mm -hmm. like a couple of weeks ago or not i guess it's a month ago now this girl messaged me and she sent me a photo of um her so when we went to india last we did like a mask workshop with the girls just for fun because they love Mm -hmm. the snapchat filters so we were Mm -hmm. like oh they can have a real life snapchat filter if we make masks Mm -hmm. That was just one of the workshops we did. And um, this girl that follows Girl Collective, she reached out to me and sent me these photos of all these little girls in Mexico with these masks on. And she's like, hey, I just wanted to tell you that I got a bunch of girls together and friends to raise money for these girls. And we went to an orphanage in Mexico and we did this ma- the mask workshop. And 
you inspired, you know, Girl Collective inspired me to do this wow. and share it with you. And I literally like just cried. Like I didn't, I didn't realize that this was, that was going to come of it too. And it's so, it's so amazing to see that other women and girls are taking it into their own hands to make a difference, you know, in their communities and with girls and people that they don't even know or have never even met. Mm -hmm. Like, I've never met her. She's never met me. But somehow mm -hmm. the online community has grown into such a place where people do feel compelled. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where the future is. I think the future lies in all the girls that are the community of Girl Collective. I think it lies in the in the girls in India who are going to go on to be able to go to school until they graduate and hopefully mm -hmm. go to college and work in careers that they love instead of, mm -hmm. you know, if they want to stay home, obviously, by all means, you know, but if they don't, mm -hmm. they have that option. So that's the future that I see in all of this. <laughs> I love it. And I want to thank you so much for the work that you put into this every day. I know that building a community is not the easiest thing in the world. And I know that there's a lot of sacrifice and and personal investment that goes into it. You have to believe in what you're doing, even when no one else does, right? Yeah. So thank you so much for everything that you do. If people want to find you and support you, how can they find you and follow you? Yeah, so you guys can all find Girl Collective at GRL Collective on Instagram. We are also uh, girlcollective.com on the internet. And my personal Instagram is at Christine with a K, 16. Um, yeah, you can find anything Girl Collective related on, on both. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Christine, so much for being here with us. Thank you for sharing your story, for being vulnerable. And we're looking forward to just continue to support you and what you're doing. Thank you so much. It's such been such an honor to be on this. This is my first podcast interview. So thank you. Whoa, yeah, I feel so honored too. And thank you everyone for listening. And make sure you go and you find her and you support. You show support for um, this beautiful cause. And we'll talk soon. Besos.